thank you so much for Brett and his service. We just have wonderful servants around here, and there are lots of people that suffer. But Brett means a lot to me, this church, and he's got such a huge role to play. And we just pray for his protection, for his physical well-being, that he would recover quickly. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in life, it, it's really nice to know who's on your side, because sometimes it seems like somebody's on your side, but they're not actually on your side, and that can be a little bit depressing, uh, but expected. Uh, you probably know what it's like to have thought somebody had your back, they didn't have your back, and, and then you just kind of learn to deal with that. Rather recently, I, I mentioned like five weeks ago, yeah, some neighbors in the neighborhood, they driving at a dolly, ran to the back of my Jeep. It's likely totaled. He said everything's going to be okay. Uh, the fella who uh, who ran into me, or at least his family did, and he said, we've got insurance, here's the insurance, they'll take care of you. And So everything seemed to be going pretty well. Such and such insurance agency, they were a little bit hard at first, but then they said, we got you covered. And then last week I get a phone call from the auto rental company, and they say, hey, you've got to get your car back within an hour because such and such rental or such and such insurance agency, they're not covering you anymore. It's like, well, that's nice. I'm glad I got notified, not by them, but by you, but thank you very much. So I had to rush the car over there. And fortunately, a little bit earlier in the day, the people doing my auto body work, actually Daryl Denton from H&R Auto Body, called and said, hey, I don't normally do this, but the insurance isn't going to cover it. Sorry. Uh, too bad. And I'm glad that Daryl let me know, but I never got a call, a text, an email or anything from the insurance who kind of kind of given me the run around a little bit for the first few weeks. But that's okay. That's to be expected. They're not on my side. Thought they were. Then I call my own insurance, and then I hope that everything's going to work out. But you know how it kind of goes sometimes. You just, I hope that this is going to work out. I hope that people are going to do me right. They don't always. That's why when it comes to insurance, and I'm not suggesting that you do this insurance company. I'm not endorsing them. But, you know, there's a great ad from Nationwide. Nationwide is See, you want that. You want to get that. I don't want, hope nobody changes insurance right now just because I brought that up. But you want people on your side. Now, just because somebody's on your side doesn't necessarily mean that they're always going to tell you what you want to hear or do what you want them to do. That's not necessarily the case. Daryl, I am very grateful for him and his friendship. He called me and told me some things that I didn't want to hear. But I'm glad he did. I like people with integrity. Generally, the business follows when people are most concerned about the customer and had the same kind of experience uh, with Apex uh, Roofing and uh, Mike Cochran. You know, it's really fantastic. But just because someone's on your side doesn't mean they're always going to agree with you, always going to tell you what you want to hear, always do what you want them to do. No, that's not the case. Like with mom. Believe it or not, growing up, mom did not always tell me what I wanted to hear. She didn't, sometimes she told me to do things I didn't want to do. Sometimes it was kind of painful, our relationship, because believe it or not, my mom gave me spankings. Can you believe that? She gave me spankings growing up. And that's okay, I'm not bitter. But I know she's on my side. In fact, I'll give you proof of this. Last week, I had sort of off the cuff said, you know, when's the last time my mom raked leaves for me? And, and sure enough, after the sermon, she texted me and said, I'll come rake leaves for you next week if you want. I'm serious. So last week, guess what? Mom came from Waco, and she raked leaves in my front yard. Now, my dad didn't rake leaves for me in my front yard. She just mom, but dad's still on my side because dad drove mom down. And we sat on the front porch drinking, you know, our mint julep and uh, watching mom walk, work out in the front. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't that bad. 
But, uh, you know, she's on my side. You want people like mom or like dad or like, you know, Kathy or, or Daryl Denton or whoever it is that's your friend or a Mike Cochran. You want people on your side, right? That's one of the things that makes me so melancholy about Mark leaving because I've always felt like he was on my side and on the side of the kids and on the side of the parents. You don't always get that. But with Mark, I knew he's on our side. So it should really come as no surprise that when people start thinking about God, the big question that people have, if not the biggest question, is, is God on my side? That's a huge question. And, and you go back to the garden and you go, well, that was kind of the question. We think God's not on our side. But is God on my side? This morning, I want to do something um, that maybe people don't necessarily expect when you start thinking about God being on side. I want you to turn your attention to Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. We're going to go to the Old Testament. We're starting this series on going old school. And we're, we're just going to spend some time in the Old Testament and some Old Testament passages, some that I really like. And this morning, we're going to turn our, our attention to, to, to Zechariah and this one vision that he has. And he answers the question, is God really on your side? And the answer that we get is God is so on your side that even when you're not on God's side, God's still on yours. Isn't that great? In fact, as we're going to see, God is so much an advocate for you that he's more of an advocate for you than anyone else ever has been and more so than anyone else ever will be. Okay, with that, let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. This is Zechariah chapter 3, and we're going to start with verse 1 all the way through verse 7. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. This is a vision. And Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements... Then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, uh, I like this passage for all kinds of reasons. Uh, first off, it really does demonstrate that the God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament, one and the same God. Don't do this bifurcation business. Just like in the New Testament where God is on your side and Satan is not on your side, that's also the case in the Old Testament. And here we have this vision where Satan is one of the featured players. Now, I just want to be honest with you here. Satan doesn't make many appearances in the Old Testament. But when he shows up, he's the same as in the New Testament. He is the accuser. Now, frequently when people think about the enemy, they think about the enemy in terms of him being the tempter. And yes, he is a tempter. But as we talked about a few weeks ago when we were talking about spiritual warfare and and, uh, Ephesians chapter 6... Generally, you, you lead with your weak hand and your knockout punch is maybe the right uppercut. And yes, Satan tempts, but the real knockout blow comes from the accusation. And here he's the accuser. In fact, Satan means accuser. could actually be translated as the prosecutor or even prosecuting attorney. There's one modern translation that translates Satan here in this particular passage as the 
prosecutor. That's what he does. And we, we have, among other things, lots to deal with. But when it comes to really being successful in life, one of the things that we deal with as much as anything is the prosecution, is the accusation that comes against us. Now, in this vision, we, we see, okay, here's Satan and there, here's God as kind of a judge. And then we have Joshua. Now, Joshua is the high priest. And he's wearing filthy clothes. Now, if you intuitively immediately want to put yourself into the shoes of Joshua because you've got dirty clothes, you're right. Because Joshua is the high priest and the high priest would stand in for the people. He's the, the double for you. He's the double for me. And so it's not just broadly speaking, yeah, 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 I'm dirty too. No, this is what's being communicated. Uh, we are, in, in effect, in the vision. Each of us would be in the place of Joshua because Joshua is in the place for you. And here... Joshua is wearing dirty clothes, uh, representing the sins of God's people. Now we we and, and this is really sad for God, because Joshua, you, me, we are in an unacceptable posture toward God. Now we don't know what the sins were in particular. It may have been the failure to build the temple. It may have been the the falling down before fallen idols. That is the sin that is in mind in particular. It could be that maybe. What God has in mind in this passage is the fact that people in his, uh, uh, those of his children, they were marrying pagans uh, from foreign religions and thus also falling down before foreign gods or it may have been all above. We don't know exactly what's going on here, but here's what we see happening. There's unacceptability. Joshua is before this holy, clean, perfectly pure God and he's wearing filthy clothes and that means he can't be touched. He's unacceptable. You're not getting in. Now, this is sad, not just for Joshua and thus for you and for me. This is really sad for God. Let me, let me see if I can draw this out for you. Some of you, unfortunately, know the pain of not being able to see, for some time, your grandchildren or your children or your parents or your grandparents. You know why? Because there's either the fear of COVID or the presence of COVID. If you have COVID... Everybody else stays away from you, and that's sad enough. But if you've gone for a year without hugging, embracing, seeing your children or your grandchildren, that's sad on both ends. I'm not making some political statement or anything. It's just the nature or the reality of the situation. And all of us would agree how sad it is to see people. And I, and I am over by kind of an assisted living center, and so I will see people inside and people outside, and they'll be communicating with signs through the window, but not actually embracing, not actually touching, not actually going in for a year. Here's God, and he says to his children, we can't have the relationship that I want. You're dirty. There's something separating us. Don't like it. It's the nature of the situation. It's sad. This isn't God being mean. This is God grieving over the situation. And, and the, it's the filth that keeps us apart from God, specifically the clothing. Now, there is this idea, and it's not just in our culture, it's almost like ingrained in the human psyche. It goes all the way to the base of who we are as human beings. There is this idea, this concept, that I need to be appropriately covered so as to be acceptable. It's not just in our culture, but around the world, the clothes... Make the man, they make the woman. You can't get in unless you are rightly covered from head to toe. So if you're trying to make an impression or first impression, you go to a banquet or something, 
You don't ever want it to be underdressed. You want to be as dressed or even dressed in another 20 degrees. You want to be overdressed as opposed to underdressed because there's acceptability that's at stake. Let me go at it like this. I read recently that about one out of three adults, not children, not human beings, one out of three adults on a routine basis has these dreams of being in a public place, undressed or underdressed. Now, at this point, I want—I really want to ask you, show of hands, who's that true for? But I don't want to expose anybody to public shame, okay? I just know that it happens, and maybe it happens for you on occasion, or maybe likely it happened to most of us in this room when we were younger. So I'm not going to ask you to expose yourself. I'll tell you my own particular story. I don't have those kinds of dreams, but when I was a kid, elementary school, middle school, I would have this routine dream where I was in class paying attention to the teacher because I was a good little student. And all of a sudden, I'd look down and like, I'm just in my underwear. Now, sometimes I'd have a shirt on, sometimes not, but it was, you know, the, I'm just wearing my tidy whities and I didn't bring my, you know, my pants, I don't have my socks on, I don't have my shoes. And it was very confusing. Like, when did this happen? And then the next question would be, has anybody else noticed? Or are they all secretly snickering? And then the next question would be, should I just stay here because I'm kind of in my chair and the desk is over me and I can do this? And when the bell rings, what am I going to do? And then the next question, the last question would be, what kind of a mom do I have? Did she, she put me in the car and then she dropped me off and she saw I didn't have any pants on. What a messed up mom. Dad would never do this. If dad saw me in my underwear, he would say, get back in the house and put some pants on. He wouldn't send me into the class. But my mom, what kind of mom do I have that she sends me to class half-dressed? And when's the last time she raked leaves for me anyway? No, I didn't actually, didn't really actually. I didn't know I had so many problems with my mom until the last couple of weeks. Anyways, that's what's going on here in this vision. Joshua is underdressed, inappropriately dressed. He's not covered. His clothes are filthy. And this cuts to the very heart of your concern and my concern as a human being, not just a Christian or religious person. What every human being is concerned about is acceptability. Because your bad dream and my bad dream, our nightmare is if people see beneath the surface of things, if if people see beneath the facade, if people look past the outward appearances and the smile and my little resume that I put together really nice and tight and they see what's really going on, they might not like me. In fact, I know they won't like me because what I fear more than anything else is, is just the naked truth about me. I don't want you to see me for how I see me and, and how I see me is frankly someone who needs some covering because I'm a fraud. I'm an imposter. We don't want to be found out. And I don't know how everybody watching or how everybody here thinks about the Bible. You may say, I don't even know about the Bible. I don't even trust the Bible. I think some of it's true. Whatever. Okay, I hope you believe the Bible. But even if you don't believe the Bible, you can just do some reflection and say, isn't it true that deep down inside you feel like you are standing before the bar, that you are in front of the bench, that there is a judge and there is an accuser, and it's not just that you remember some things in the past about which you're guilty. It almost feels like someone is pointing out 
a consistent, ongoing, ever-present guilt. Someone is pointing to your clothes and saying, they're dirty. Look at those dirty clothes. You're not acceptable. Now, we will drown out the voice of the accuser in all kinds of ways. And they're not necessarily bad or unhealthy. You can bury your nose in a book or in a movie. Uh, you can, you know, get preoccupied with the, the details of your investments or your education or whatever the case may be. There's all kinds of things that can be distractions, diversions for you and for me that somehow drown out that voice that's coming across like on the little radio waves in the conscience or subconscious of your mind, but in those quiet moments when you're sort of still and there aren't the distractions, can't you just feel that there's an accuser and you're before the bench and it's not going well? Now, the voice of accusation comes across in all kinds of ways in different moments. Sometimes you'll hear the voice of the accuser when you're in trouble, okay? Suppose you're, you get engaged and then one or the other breaks off the engagement and, and then you feel bad about it and, or maybe you get sick and you pray for healing but the healing's not really coming and, and you'll hear this voice say something like, God's punishing you and you deserve it. Or maybe you're trying to be a witness to a friend. You're trying to bear witness to a friend or a family member, a co-worker. And in that moment when you're trying to bear witness, the enemy says, Who are you to even mention the name of Jesus? Look at your life. How crummy. Look at your failings. Look at your shortcomings. Look at your addictions. Look at your relationships. Look at your family. Look at your wife. Look at your husband. You're thinking about this. And you're, what, what a sham. Why are you even trying to bear witness to someone else? There are other occasions when you hear the voice of the enemy. Number three, when you pray, you bow your head, close your eyes, and, and all of a sudden there's this accusation, why should God even listen to you? Look at your life. He really wants to have nothing to do with you. No wonder your, your prayers seem to be hitting the ceiling and bouncing back at your face. Look at you. You're a mess. Another time that the accusation seems to come, it seems a little strange when, when you see your weaknesses and your failures and your heart and you're, you're actually turning to God and you're confessing your sin and, and the enemy says, well, how many times do you confess that? I mean, you just keep coming back for more. You're, you're a disaster. God's not hearing your prayers. Confess your sins and he'll be faithful and just and cleanse you of all unrighteousness and all the rest. You know, what an unrighteous, messed up mess you are. And then sometimes... The voice of accusation comes when you just notice that you're kind of cold and dry. You've gone through a dry spell. Just things haven't been very warm. And, and the enemy says, well, the reason God feels so distant from you is he is distant from you. Because he doesn't want to have anything to do with you. The reason God is absent in your life is because he really just wants nothing to do with you. And the times that you felt like you were close to him, maybe when you went to camp or when you went to that retreat... Or you were on a roll and you went to church like three Sundays in a row or whatever the case is. And you felt like you were close to God, but those were just times when you were deceiving yourself. You weren't on fire. You just kind of close to the fire. But God really has never really been a part of your life. Not really, because who, when they really see you for who you are and they look beneath the surface of things, who really wants to have anything to do with you? You're an unholy mess. There are all kinds of ways and times where the accuser 
comes at you and comes at me and he prosecutes and he says in so many words, look at those dirty clothes. Who are you to stand before a perfectly clean, holy, pure God? Now, the, the question that is on my mind and ought to be on your mind is, okay, so what do I do with the, how do I, what do I do with the prosecutor? When the accuser starts pointing the finger, how do I deal with this? Zechariah gives us uh, the answer, and it's a great answer. It's going to seem like a familiar answer because we say this in so many words in different ways. But let's go to Zechariah chapter 3, and we see that in this vision, here's Joshua, the high priest, representing you and me, standing there. And it says, the scripture tells us, that he was standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Now you may have noticed something a little bit strange here and that is it says that in the vision there's Satan and then there's the angel of the Lord and then it says the Lord said and then it says the angel of the Lord said. So what's going on here? Well, the best that we understand when you get to the Old Testament and it talks about the angel of the Lord, we're typically not talking about an angel like Gabriel or an angel like Michael. The angel of the Lord is one who speaks of the Lord and speaks as the Lord. We're dealing with essentially the second person of the Trinity or the pre-incarnate Christ. And, and, and here, and this isn't just my opinion, this is a majority consensus. We are dealing with, in so many words, Jesus. And so here's the pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, who also speaks on behalf of the Lord because he is the Lord. And, and you'll notice the first thing that our Lord does is he points to Satan saying, don't you dare keep heaping accusations on this person because they're not under condemnation. This is a stick that's been rescued, snatched from the fire. No more condemnation. I've already reached in. This stick is not going to be consumed by this consuming fire and turned into ash. It's already been rescued from condemnation. Now, let me point something out to you that you may not know, but you ought to know, but we pretend that we don't know. Let me tell you something about what happens when you become a Christian. Let me contrast that with what happens before you're a Christian. Before you're a Christian, you will say things that you should not say. You will do things you should not do. You will think things you should not think, and you will not think things you should think. Then after you become a Christian, guess what? You do things you should not do. And you say things you should not say. And you don't say things you should say, and you think things you shouldn't think, and then you don't think things that you should think. On the surface of things, it doesn't seem like a whole lot necessarily changes, and that's basically true. I tell people, you know, before I became a Christian, I fought with my brother and I lied to my parents. I got saved at the age of six. After I got saved, I fought with my brother and I lied to my parents. Now it's gotten better. Now I just fight with my brother, but I don't lie to my parents. Things do improve. 
but I got rescued. I got snatched from the fire. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Satan, Jesus says, you better leave this person alone because I've already claimed them as mine. Yes, there's some tarnish. There's there's a little bit of tar. There's some blackness. There's some soot. There's some filth. And when you rub up against that stick that's been pulled from the fire, it's no longer in fire, but it's still black and there's still the pollution of sin. But there's no condemnation. Now, the problem that we have is we will typically stop there, but Jesus starts there, okay? He goes on and he says, and I'm giving this person new clothes. Check this out. Let's go back to the Bible. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him. While the angel of the Lord stood by. Do you know what this is showing us? This is showing us that the doctrine of justification by faith goes way beyond merely giving you forgiveness of sin. It goes way beyond merely you being shown mercy so that your sin is not held against you. It goes beyond just you having debts paid. When I was growing up, I was under the impression that when you got saved, when you became a Christian, you were forgiven all your sins. And that's true. And your debts were paid. And that's true. But for some reason, I didn't get the message concerning now I'm totally and utterly acceptable because of the clean robes and the turban that's been placed upon my head. I was under the impression that when you get saved, when you become a Christian, you, you repent of your sin and you trust in Jesus, and that means even though you deserve to be separated from God and separated from God for all eternity, you're not going to be separated from God for all eternity. You're not going to go to hell. Now, that in and of itself would be great news. If that's all there was to the good news, that would be fantastic news. But that's not the whole of the news. The whole of the news is I didn't just, got, I didn't just get let go. I got brought in or put a little bit differently. Some of us are under the impression that maybe as a sinner, I was like, you know, the murderer on death row. And, uh, you know, I was destined to die and spend an eternity separated from God. But the governor of the universe pardoned me. And now I don't have to spend the rest of my life in jail and suffer the death penalty. That's kind of true. But here's the fuller truth. When you got pardoned, you also got Adopted, And that means not only are you no longer on death row, you're living in the governor's mansion. And you are now adopted and treated as his beloved firstborn son. You've been brought in, not just let go. That is to say, God wants a relationship with you. And he wants an intimate relationship, a close relationship with you. The relationship that he has experienced for all eternity between himself and the Spirit and the Son. Now that makes me go, wow. And let me tell you why. It's hard to want a relationship with someone who has fundamentally done you wrong, knowing they did you wrong when they did the wrong to you. This isn't just forgiveness, see you later, I'll absorb the cost. No, there's more to it than that. This is I'm going to love you, like I love myself, or more than I love myself, and any parent who has children understands that.
I told you my Jeep got totaled. It's like, you know, it's like whatever. It's kind of funny. It's like it's just a piece of metal. It's the only car I've ever really loved. It's the one I put my heart and soul into. It's the one I would wake up to and kiss every morning. But it's not that big of a deal, okay? It was the one I wanted to be buried in face up so that when Jesus called my name, I just put it in low gear and drive up to heaven. But that's okay. I'm over it. Uh, it's not that big of a deal. And there's insurance. It'll cover most of it. It'll work itself out. My neighbors hit that. And I don't know who hit it. I just know they did me wrong. I'm not suing them for whiplash, but when I found out that the car had been hit, I jumped out of bed so fast that it's, my neck still hurts. Okay, but I'm not suing them for that. And their insurance isn't going to cover it, and there's going to be money out of my pocket, and it's okay. I'll absorb the cost. That's what forgiveness is. Grace in its fullness is, and now I'm going to be best friends with these people. And I'm going to sacrifice for them for the rest of my life. And I'm going to love them like I love my son and I love my daughter. That's a little different. Let me see if I can drive it to you like this. And this is just, I think, a very common, although maybe a little uncommon sort of an illustration. It's one thing to forgive. It's another to fall in love and draw someone close, serve. Uh, I heard this story about uh, Oswald Patton. He's a, I guess he's an impromptu actor and a comedian. And he has this way of kind of coming at, back at hecklers who kind of try to throw him off his game. And Well, he did this tweet, and I'm not defending the tweet. He did this tweet where he sort of attacked what, who was then President, President Trump. Someone saw the tweet on Twitter. They took offense. This guy's name was Michael Beatty, and he came back at Oswald Patton and said some unkind things about Oswald, and then Oswald kind of shot back a little joke, and then Oswald Patton did something that he didn't normally do. He looked into the Twitter history of Michael Beatty, and he found out, here's somebody that's got problems on top of problems. He's dealing with some severe health problems, and and then uh, Oswald Patton sent out this tweet. Oh, man, this dude just attacked me on Twitter, and I joked back. But then I looked at his timeline, and he's in a lot of trouble health-wise. He's been dealt some terrible cards. Let's deal him some good ones. Click and donate just like I'm about to. And the link that followed was a GoFundMe page. And it was a, Go, it was a link to the GoFundMe. And the GoFundMe was to try to raise an extra $5,000 for Michael Beatty because he was suffering from ketoacidosis and, you know, blood sugar problems, diabetes. And uh, not only did... Patton Oswald make donations, but he raised awareness so that the GoFundMe page goal was, you know, multiple times over that, that amount was raised. After it was all said, after this little Twitter war, and you know how, like, online stuff can just kind of get out of control? After Oswald Patton did this for Michael Beatty and raised tens of thousands of dollars for him, uh, Michael Beatty was undone and he said, you have humbled me to the point where I can barely compose my words. You've caused me to take pause and reflect on how harmful my words from my mouth uh, could be and could result in such an outpouring. When the response to the insult and the offense and the hurt is not just forgiveness, well, I'll pay the debt and I'll just move on and whatever. When the response is not just I'm going to let you go but I'm going to draw you in. When the response is I'm not just letting you off the hook but I'm going to love you and serve you. That has a profound effect on our transformation and change. 
This is grace in its fullness. Grace in its fullness isn't just, I forgive you, you're debt-free. That's wonderful. It is. But it's more than that. It's, I'm going to take off your filthy clothes and I'm going to clothe you with my righteousness, head to toe, turban and robe. From the top of your body all the way down to the ground, you are completely covered and it's totally by my grace. And the reason I'm covering you is not because I just don't like your little unsightly life. It's because I want what every father wants, and that is to embrace the children, and I'm tired of this COVID or whatever the sin may be that is keeping me from knowing you. We offended him, we sinned against him, we committed cosmic treason, and the king of the universe didn't just let us off the hook, he brought us into the territory, but he didn't just bring us into the kingdom, he brought us into his house, and he didn't just bring us into his house, he embraced us as his only begotten son. That's the fullness of grace. And when that hits you, it transforms you. Not because you have to do something so as to earn off, to pay off the debt or even earn his favor or earn your way in. You begin to change because you see that hilariously you have been granted a grace you never even began to deserve. That's the gospel. Now, we sort of talk about this in different ways all the time, but let me mention a couple of things and then we're going, to be, we're going to be done. First off, I just want you to notice that our text for this morning wasn't out of Ephesians or Philippians or Galatians or Colossians or John 3.16 or Luke 15, Romans 10.9 and 10. It's from the Old Testament. And so I just want you to know God was then who he is now, and if you don't notice that, you're not reading enough of the Old Testament or reading it closely enough, okay? It's the same God. But beyond that, I want to point something else out to you, and that is when, as the people of God, we get this good news gospel message, it makes us the kind of community that people want to be a part of. Let me explain what I mean. When you recognize that radical, undeserved acceptance, you come ready for worship. And I don't just mean the hour that we have here. I mean, I'm just talking about like the the entire week long. You have no problem barging right smack dab into his presence because you know the level of acceptance that's been granted to you. That's the kind of community of which I want to be a part. It's also uh, kind of interesting how when people get this grace, they do develop a sense of humor. And and I don't mean the ability to tell jokes or be sarcastic or whatever the case may be. I'm saying you, you get a certain perspective on life where you just can't take yourself too seriously because you, 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 you see it as kind of a joke, and not that God isn't to be trusted or that he's not honest, but it's, a, it's, it's crazy that God would use someone like me. It's, it's, it's kind of a, it is kind of funny that God would take jars of clay like you and like me, and he would fill it with the glorious riches of his, of his eternal, ongoing presence, That's why we don't take ourselves too seriously and we can take some criticism and correction and all the rest because he's so awesome and we're just not and we don't have to be because for all of the failure and shortcomings that are true about you and about me, the awesomeness and the grace of God more than makes up for it. He's so good. He can and does cover you head to toe with his holy righteousness. There's something else that's kind of cool about being in a community that gets the fullness of the gospel. It's not just the, you know, the sense of humor and the the worship. It's the transparency. 
Because the truth about me is you know what's beneath the surface. It's filthy clothes. It's, a, it's an unseemly nakedness. But I'm covered. And I know that about you too. And we don't go around like Satan doing the accusation thing and trying to prosecute one another because we know that we are only worthy to be prosecuted, but it's only by His grace that we've been accepted. And so there's no fear here of transparency because we all know the story and we're all in the same boat. I was kind of thinking about this in terms of uh, family. And, you know, it, you know, I don't know how it is in your family, but I'll just tell you, around my family, yeah, the husband and the wife, that's the way it works. You, there's the nudity. But when you have kids, it's true too. My parents have pictures of me and my brother and me and my cousin, Jerron, in the bathtub naked. I wish we could burn those pictures. But that's just the way it is around family. And I thought, I'm never going to do that to my kids, but we've got pictures of Nathan and Shelby in the bathtub naked. There's just, there's just a sort of a transparency that happens around families where you go, that's how he is, that's how she is, and you see beneath the surface of things, and that doesn't change anything because it's family. Wouldn't it be great to be in a family where you could be yourself and you're totally accepted and you would accept other people because you know God accepted you and God accepted them and so who are you to reject them especially when you know what's beneath the cover? Isn't it great to be in a place where you can be yourself and you can honestly confess your sins one to another and grant the forgiveness that's already been given by Jesus Christ? Wouldn't that be kind of a fun family to be a part of? That's how I feel about this place. We come ready to worship. We are covered by Jesus. We can be with one another and encouraging one another in the best of ways. And we don't take ourselves too seriously. But that happens when you take Jesus seriously. That's the kind of community that people want. And it all comes from the gospel. So I don't know exactly where everybody is in terms of their relationship with Jesus, and I don't know where I don't know who all's watching this morning. But if you're looking for a church family that gets the gospel, and you want to be a part of a place where people worship and they love, and they don't take themselves too seriously, and nobody's out to prosecute you because there's not a religious spirit, this is a good place to be a part of. Can I get some response so people up there can hear? That's the truth. And. Uh, and that's why I feel sorry for Mark, because he's moving from here to a place that's not nearly as good, but maybe you can help him out. I don't know. But, but this is a great place, but God gets all the glory. It's not me. It's not you. It's not Mark. It's not Christy. It's not Kathy. It's the gospel. It's Jesus. Jesus makes good things happen because he snatches us out of the fire and he covers us with his blood. Let's bow for a word of prayer and then we'll be done. Uh, and I'm not going to ask the praise team to come up here because it's time to move on and I went too long and that's on me. And We're going to celebrate Mark and all the rest, but we're going to close in a word of prayer here just real quick and then we'll be done. Father, we just want to say thank you for the way you have us covered. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for making us the kind of family that you would have us to be. And Lord, nothing shapes us like the gospel. And I pray that we would get it. Not just that we are let off the hook, but that we are, that we are hooked on you, that you, you bring us in and you embrace us wholeheartedly without reservation. And with that kind of forgiveness and that kind of mercy and that kind of acceptance, how could we not change in the process?
Lord, you've, you've rescued us from the penalty of sin. You've, you've covered us so that there's no distance between us. And we just pray that as that grace sinks in more and more to our souls, that we will continue to repent of and move away from the pollution of sin, that we be more and more like Christ because we recognize when we see the gospel, there's no God like you. And we want you to be seen clearly by other people around us. God, I do pray that if there are any that are, you know, in process of looking for a church home, that they would maybe give Main Street a chance. I also pray, Lord, that if there are any who have not fully received the gospel, that they would do so, so that we would be liberated from an accusatory prosecutor spirit that is only in keeping with Satan. May we know the joy of family. May we know the joy of the humility. May we know the joy of being accepted and granting acceptance. May we know the joy of not taking ourselves too seriously. May we know the joy of change and repentance. May we know the joy of just bursting right into your presence unhindered. May we know the joy that is appropriate for a Jesus-shaped community. And we ask all of that in Jesus Christ's blessed holy name. Amen.